0: It's Friday, July 16th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Dave. And this is Pete. And we're on the road for Radio Free Oz on Bob, the 57-foot yacht with its captain, BP CEO, Horny Wayward, uh, Tony Hayward at the helm. Oh, Welcome aboard, boys. And with him is Mississippi Governor, Haley Barber. What a beautiful day for sailing the sea like moose. Uh, Where are you uh, headed there uh,
1: now, Tony? Well, I'm sailing around the world to offer my glad hand to all the sheikhs and sheikhs and Russians and Greeks who've partnered with BP. (laughs) Ah!
0: Watch it, it's it's those damn birds again. Albatrosses
1: keep falling out of the oil rain and landing around my neck. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to sail out of here away from all the, the dead birds and the crowds of people suffering from unemployment. It's a it's a disease, isn't it?
0: More like an epidemic. Uh, we don't
1: seem to be making much headway, Tony. I could usually get through the gulf in a day, but uh, not in these heavy seas. Oh, that six-foot-thick oil scum is... It's bloody hard to cut through.
0: That's no scum, Tony. What? What reminds me of the slick sheen from a criss rafting by pulling a good-looking girl and a well-built guy.
1: Hmm, I don't think the scum is your biggest problem, Tony. I think mm, that is... Oh. Mother of pearl. <laughs> It's the whitening
0: wheel! The biggest super skimmer in the world! Look at those booms! Oh. They must be a thousand feet long and stuffed with salon poodle hair and gaga wig! Oh, it's heading right at us and it's pushing a fast slew of this
1: It's going to sum us up! <laughs> My, oh my, that was close! Why, why why did you just let Pete and me off right here at Gas War Island, okay?
0: Uh, Thanks, fellas. Good luck with the whitening whale. No worries,
1: lads. I've never met an oil disaster as slick as me.
0: This is Peter Bergman and David Osmond, completely at sea for Radio Free Oz, hoping that all's well with this oil well. Uh, Where do we go to get a drink, Pete? Where's the helicopter? Oh yeah, radio, free in your ears, and it's time for the best of the best. And today, the entire Eikenberry Papers. It's a big thing. Over the next two days, I'm going to be reading in their entirety... The two secret cables sent by our ambassador in Afghanistan, Carl W. Eikenberry, to his boss, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. They were uh, somehow uh, came into the presence of the New York Times and were published. Um, They're quite remarkable. There's two of them, one talking about counterinsurgency and the next – after counterinsurgency. The first was sent on November 6, 2009, the second on November 9, 2009, and he's giving his opinion on whether or not Barack Obama should send an additional 20 or 30,000 troops to Afghanistan. Daniel Ellsberg said, these are the Pentagon Papers of the Afghanistan War. But first, let's take a look at Eikenberry himself. Let's look at his creds, his provenance, and then you can decide for yourself just how serious and you know credible this man is. Prior to his assignment, he was sworn in as U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan in April of 2009. Mr. Eikenberry served as the deputy chairman of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization Military Committee in Brussels. He retired from the U.S. military with the rank of lieutenant general in April of 2009. His military operational posts included service as commander and staff officer with mechanized, light, airborne, and ranger infantry units in the continental United States, Hawaii, Korea, and Italy. He has served in various strategy, policy, and political military positions, including Director for Strategic Planning and Policy for U.S. Pacific Command, U.S. Security Coordinator and Chief of the Office of Military Cooperation in Kabul, Afghanistan assistant army and later defense attache at the united states embassy in beijing china senior country director for china taiwan hong kong and mongolia in the office of the secretary of defense and deputy director for strategy plans and policy on the army staff he's a graduate of the u.s military academy has master's degrees from harvard university in east asian studies and stanford university in political science and was a national security fellow at the kennedy school of government at harvard he earned an interpreter certificate certificate in Mandarin Chinese from the British Foreign Commonwealth Office while studying at the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense Chinese Language School in Hong Kong, and he has an advanced degree in Chinese history from Nanjing University in the People's Republic of China. He's published numerous articles on U.S. military training, tactics, and strategy on Chinese ancient military history and on Asia-Pacific security issues. He was previously the president of the Foreign Area Officers Association and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He is married to Ching Eikenberry. This man is the real thing.
1: Fly the Goddess, multi-sex plugs for your laptops, international mini-meals, unlimited plague-free air, no bloody babies, and extra knee room for your extra knee. Isn't that where you want to be at midnight when the big eyeball drops on those sub-millionaires 30,000 feet beneath you? Goddess Air, she'll get
0: you there. Ambassador Carl Eikenberry to Hillary Clinton secretary of state cable one secret 6 november 2009 subject coin strategy coin is the acronym for counterinsurgency and this is about civilian concerns madam secretary as we near the end of our deliberations on the way forward in afghanistan i would like to outline my reservations about a counterinsurgency strategy that relies on a large infusion of u.s forces I fully agree that the security situation in Afghanistan is serious and that additional troops will help reverse the worsening trends in areas where the troops are deployed. There is an unassailable logic to the argument that a robust counterinsurgency approach will yield measurable progress, at least in the security realm. But I am concerned that we underestimate the risks of this expansion of our mission and that we have not fully studied every alternative. The proposed troop increase will bring vastly increased costs and an indefinite, large-scale U.S. military role in Afghanistan, generating the need for yet more civilians. An increased U.S. and foreign role in security and governance will increase Afghan dependency, at least in the near term, and it will deepen the military involvement in a mission that most agree cannot be won solely by military means." Further, it will run counter to our strategic purposes of Afghanicizing and civilianizing government functions here. Perhaps the charts we have all seen showing the U.S. presence rising and then dropping off in coming years in a bell curve will prove accurate. It is more likely, however, that these forecasts are imprecise and optimistic. In that case, sending additional forces will delay the day when Afghans will take over and make it difficult, if not impossible, to bring our people home on a reasonable timetable. Moreover, none of these charts display dollar costs. Acknowledgement of the astronomical costs might illustrate the greater desirability of civilian alternatives now dismissed as too costly or not feasible. Here are my reasons for this assessment. 1. President Karzai is not an adequate strategic partner. The proposed counterinsurgency strategy assumes an Afghan political leadership that is both able to take responsibility and to exert sovereignty in the furtherance of our goal. A secure, peaceful, minimally self-sufficient Afghanistan hardened against transnational groups. Yet Karzai continues to shun responsibility for any sovereign burden, whether defense, governance, or development. He and much of his circle do not want the U.S. to leave and are only too happy to see us invest further. They assume we covet their territory for a never-ending war on terror and for military bases to use against surrounding powers. With his re-election, Karzai will remain Afghanistan's dominant political actor. We hope we can move him toward taking firm control of his country and guiding its future, but sending more combat forces will only strengthen his misconceptions about why we are here. Before any troop announcement, we should first have a high-level dialogue with Karzai and his new government to explain our goals and obtain agreement on what we expect from them. Even with such an understanding, it strains credulity to expect Karzai to change fundamentally this late in his life and in our relationship. Beyond Karzai himself, there is no political ruling class that provides an overarching national identity that transcends local affiliations and provides reliable partnership. Even if we could eradicate pervasive corruption, the country has few indigenous sources of revenue, few means to distribute services to its citizens, and most important, little to no political will or capacity to carry out basic tasks of governance. As a practical matter, this means that expanding assistance, either military or civilian, will increase Afghan dependence and make more remote the day when we can transfer most sovereign responsibilities to the Afghans and draw down our own presence. Two, we overestimate the ability of Afghan security forces to take over. Success of the proposed counterinsurgency strategy hinges upon Afghan forces steadily assuming responsibility for security and fully taking over this duty by 2013. Yet achieving that goal will require President Karzai to embrace his role as commander-in-chief, a step he resists, and for him to commit his government to recruiting and training. I have serious doubts about the Afghan government's ability to meet the ambitious targets and timeliness necessary to meet our requirements. The army's high attrition and low recruitment rates for Pashtuns in the south are crippling. Simply keeping the force at current levels requires tens of thousands of new recruits every year to replace attrition losses and battlefield casualties. Those requirements would steepen dramatically under the proposed strategy." Building an effective Afghan National Police, which is in many ways more crucial to extend the Afghan government's reach into villages and districts, will prove even tougher. The police receive lower benefits and face higher risks in many places than the army. Given the exorbitant political and fiscal costs of large-scale U.S. deployments, we should consider increasing the financial incentives for joining the ANA and the ANP. If our assumption is that more forces are essential to stabilize Afghanistan, then we should investigate the benefits to security of making service in the Afghan security forces more attractive rather than relying more heavily on foreign troops. There is also the deeper concern about dependency. The proposed counterinsurgency strategy calls for partnering in the field to quickly improve the Afghan security forces. I do not question the ability of U.S. forces to effectively take on this mentoring mission, one that they have performed ably in Iraq. However, I am concerned that it is U.S. and other NATO ISAF forces, well, ISAF, International Security Assistance Force, that's 46 nations with troops on the ground that vary from Luxembourg's 9 to America's 62,415. These troops will continue to do most of the fighting and take most of the casualties. Rather than reducing Afghan dependence, sending more troops, therefore, is likely to deepen it, at least in the short term. That would delay our goal of shifting the combat burden to the Afghans.
2: Every time Obama comes on the TV,
0: which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark Channel, to so I figure he's gone, then I switch it back. You know, Dave, Harry Reid is a tough old bird he's the wrangling that democratic senate you know he had to go through the whole bush thing and now he's being um challenged by this crazy woman sharon angle right who, yeah who came in through the tea party she came in through the tea party i don't know not gonna sing it harry reed isn't letting threats of a lawsuit stop him he's sticking with his web campaign against the real sharon angle after the Angle campaign sent the Reed Camp a cease and desist letter last week demanding that they take down their reposting of Angle's old campaign website, the Reed Camp has now made just a few modifications and put it right back up.
1: They are broadcasting her website? Yes, her old website, the website that
0: she doesn't want to live with. They've
1: they've scrubbed up the...
0: Well, she took it down, right, and they replaced it with a relaunch, a somewhat toned-down version. Mm -hmm. But the reed campaign saved the old version and put up the website called The Real Sharon Angle, Ah. reproducing the old content.
1: Yeah, where they get rid of the Social Security. Yeah, yeah, the original mm -hmm.
0: website, including Angle in her own words... On the on and with her own dangerous and extreme agenda has been relaunched at TheRealSharonAngle.com. dot com. Reid said it's a matter of, of called free speech, which they say is nearly absolute under the First Amendment. And say, they say Sharon, we know those big constitutional issues are tough for you. Like when you said separation of church and state was unconstitutional exactly one week ago.
1: Oh. Sharon,
0: oh, no. Now, here comes John Summers, who is his campaign manager, or spokesman, I should say. He's got to be tough if he's speaking for Harry. The question is, said John Summers, the spokesman for Reed, What will Sharon Angle do now to hide her extreme views on killing Social Security and eliminating the Department of Education and Nevada voters? Perhaps she's checking to see if there are any Second Amendment remedies. Ooh, Second
1: Amendment remedies. Bang, you,
0: bang. Uh, Sharon, don't go there. This is part two of the first cable that our ambassador, Carl Eikenberry, sent to his boss, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, on the 6th of November, 2009, the subject being counterinsurgency strategy. Number three, he says, talking about his concerns, we underestimate how long it will take to restore or establish civilian government. The proposed strategy assumes that once the clearing and holding process has been accomplished in a given area, the rebuilding and transferring to Afghans can proceed a pace followed by a relatively rapid U.S. withdrawal. In reality, the process of restoring Afghan government is likely to be slow and uneven, no matter how many U.S. and other foreign civilian experts are involved. Many areas need not just security, but healthcare, education justice, infrastructure, and almost every other basic government function. Many have never had these services at all. Establishing them requires trained and honest Afghan officials to replace our own personnel. That cadre of Afghan civilians does not now exist and would take years to build. At the moment, it is mostly U.S. civilians and those of our allies who follow behind our forces into cleared areas to establish formal governance. We are not trying to build on a Western model, but as we assume this responsibility in an ever-widening area, it becomes harder to leave until the Afghans can provide basic services themselves. We have little clarity about how long it will be until clear districts are connected to an Afghan government that both functions in Kabul and reaches down to the local level. The proposed strategy does not remedy an inadequate civilian structure. There is no civilian organizational counterpart to ISAF and no political leadership equivalent to the NATO-ISAF commander, a deficiency that hampers civilian effectiveness and heavily skews the NATO-ISAF dialogue with the Afghan government. UNAMA, that's the uh, United Nations Organization, is not capable of coordinating all the civilian efforts because its role is not to serve as a civilian policy and program counterpart to NATO ISAF. Its capabilities and will are likely to diminish further with the recent post-attack withdrawal of UN personnel. Progress on governance, anti-corruption, rule of law, and reconstruction will ultimately determine our success, but our coalition efforts will remain less than optimal unless a stronger civilian structure is created. No one questions the military's need for coherent command and control, yet the same attention has not been paid to the civilian configuration, even though we are engaged in a long-term operation in which one of the central premises is a fully integrated civilian military effort. There is no debate that the U.S. is in the military lead. We need to reach the same understanding with our allies and partners on the civilian side, especially if more troops are sent. NATO should designate the U.S. as the lead nation for those civilian tasks delineated in its operational plan. Arguments that this will increase the U.S. role are beside the point. Right now, the U.S. leads the civilian dialogue by default, but the ambiguity in the Afghan government's eyes over the status of the U.S. versus the ISAF commander opens a seam that Karzai is likely to exploit. Unless we create a civilian authority comparative to the military chain of command, this problem will deepen, and we are likely to see further militarization of our effort instead of civilianization and Afghanization, which are our real aims. The proposed strategy may not be cost-effective. Sending additional combat brigades will require tens of billions of dollars annually for years to come, cost not detailed in the Department of Defense charts. Yet an embassy request this summer for a $2.5 billion increase in our budget for development and governance was analyzed and debated in great detail, only to be rejected. If more troops are to be sent to Afghanistan, we should revisit decisions about our development funding. In particular, we should weigh whether a relatively small additional investment in programs for development and governance would yield results that, if not as visible as those from sending more troops, would move us closer to achieving our goals at a far lesser cost and risk both in lives and dollars. Accelerating our work on signature projects to deliver greater access to electricity, water, and education could have a high payoff in stability over the long term. With a greatly stepped up development effort, we could be in a position at some point to call off further troop deployments as Afghans begin to see their lives improving and their needs addressed. I used to watch Keith Olbermann on MSNBC all the time before the election. In fact, I did nothing but watch television, you know, the run-up to the election, because I saw it was the difference between the end of the world and the beginning, perhaps, of something new.
1: All right? It did have that feel. Yes, it did.
0: And I never forget the time that Keith Olbermann took President Bush to task. He looked into that camera and basically called him a fascist. Just just and he was straightforward it wasn't attitude he was angry but it was without attitude and i went you go keith <laughs> anyway he has named rush limbaugh his worst person in the world tuesday night for limbaugh's comments that oprah and president obama only succeeded because of their race quote uh, These these Quotes speak for themselves and for a diseased and failing mind, Olbermann said, introducing Limbaugh's comments. Because earlier on in the day, Limbaugh had said, um, uh, Obama wouldn't have been voted president if he weren't black. Somebody asked me over the weekend, why does somebody earn a lot of money, have a lot of money because she's black? It was Oprah. No, it can't be. Yes, it is. There's a lot of guilt out there. Sure, we're, we're, show them we're not racist. We'll make this person wealthy and big and famous and so forth. If Obama weren't black, he'd be a tour guide in Honolulu, or he'd be teaching Saul Alinsky constitutional law or lecturing on it in Chicago. Right. That this you know too much OxyContin. Man. Yes, I think now, he's, he's got to send. He's got to send his mate out to pimp better drugs for him. This guy is going. He's,
1: he's <laughs> his going. mind is gone. Yeah. Uh, um, so it, Keith got him. All right. It's
0: naked, ugly racism. It, it, it is the distillation of Rush Limbaugh's ugly view of our country. Oberman said, and he ended with a plea to the queen of daytime talk, Oprah. Please crush this schmuck.
1: <laughs> oh, I like that. Please crush this. I, he speaks for all of us. This.
0: this is the third part of Ambassador Carl Eikenberry's secret cable of November 6, 2009, written to his boss, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, on the uh, issue of counterinsurgency strategy, civilian concerns. More troops won't end the insurgency as long as Pakistan's sanctuaries remain. Pakistan will remain the single greatest source of Afghan instability so long as the border sanctuaries remain and Pakistan views its strategic interest as best served by a weak neighbor. There is reason to be encouraged by Pakistan's current military offensive in Waziristan, but the lasting result of this effort is still unclear. Nor does the Pakistan military action address the role of the Qatashura, which has the most influence over the insurgency in southern Taliban strongholds, or the Haqqani Network, the most lethal killer of Allied troops and Afghan civilians. Until the sanctuary problem is fully addressed, the gains from sending additional forces may be fleeting. We are always looking for game changers. If we are looking for a strategic partner and military political moves likely to have decisive results, those must be in Pakistan. As we contemplate greatly expanding our presence in Afghanistan, the better answer to our difficulties could well be to further ratchet up our engagement with Pakistan. This memorandum summarizes my concerns about the counterinsurgency strategy now under consideration and my thoughts about other steps to achieve our goals. After our discussion at the Principals Committee this evening, I will follow up with a cable that will include specific recommendations. For now, I cannot support DOD's recommendation for an immediate presidential decision to deploy another 40,000 troops here. Madam Secretary, I would ask you to pass this assessment to the White House, if you deem it appropriate, in advance of the Principal's Committee. Respectfully, Eikenberry.
3: They're making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches speeches to the streets. Oh, you see them on the corner and you see them growing old. The city drove them crazy, put their minds on hold. They're talking to somebody, but nobody knows who. They're busy making speeches and they can't see. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches speeches to the streets. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. Once upon a time they had a dream like me and you, but now it's too late to make their dreams come true. So one talks to the president, the other to the wall, but no one's saying anything to anyone at all. They're making speeches, 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 speeches to the streets. They're making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. Talk to me now. Speeches Speeches Speech to Speech streets. Speech well, as Speeches Speeches Speech as 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 the the Speech the Speech as Speech as Speech the song I just sang. And everybody Everybody's talking to say who's right or wrong. Cause while they make their speech, I keep on singing my song. I'm making speeches, speeches, speeches to the streets. Making speeches, 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 speeches. Speeches to the streets, speeches to the streets, speeches to the streets.
0: This is the second of two cables that our ambassador to Afghanistan, Carl Eikenberry, sent to Hillary Clinton, this one on the 9th of November that follows up the longer screed of the 6th of November. That was about counterinsurgency in terms of civilian concerns. This cable is called Looking Beyond Counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. It's a secret cable that the New York Times was able to somehow dig out of somebody and publish. Madam Secretary. My previous cable addressed concerns about taking a decision too soon on a proposed counterinsurgency strategy that relies on a large, all-or-nothing increase in U.S. troops. I now propose that the White House commission a deliberate process to lay out the range of strategic options on Afghanistan and Pakistan, broadening the analysis beyond military counterinsurgency doctrine. There are three purposes of doing so. First, to make sure that we have tested every assumption behind the Afghan-focused military counterinsurgency proposal. Second, to examine non-military alternatives or companion requirements to a major troop increase. Third, to develop U.S. political understanding and support, as well as Afghan and allied public commitment. After such a process— General McChrystal's proposal may prove exactly what the president will decide is needed, but the time and effort put into this further deliberation will yield benefits far offsetting the costs, in my judgment. I support McChrystal's military analysis and recommendations as logical and compelling within his narrow mandate to define the needs for a military counterinsurgency campaign within Afghanistan. But the problems confronting our own strategic purpose, as laid out by the President on March 27th, are broader, and we must consider a wider set of variables before reaching a final decision. These unaddressed variables include Pakistan sanctuaries, a weak Afghanistan leadership and governance, NATO civil-military integration, and our national will to bear the human and fiscal costs over many years. The current military proposal properly sets aside each of these issues and many more because they are outside McChrystal's counterinsurgency mandate. Yet, in reality, each has the potential to block us from achieving our strategic goals, regardless of the number of additional troops that we may send. We have time. Some argue that we must decide on the full up troop deployment now. The military's long lead times, the requirement to bring along our NATO allies, and the need to single and the need to signal decisiveness and resolve are adduced as compelling reasons to announce the full troop request quickly. I disagree. We have the time we need, certainly into early next year. We must take that time to decide on the right course. As serious as the security picture in Afghanistan is today, it is not so dire that we need to announce or commit ourselves to sweeping changes immediately, either in our military or civilian posture. For example, additional combat brigades could be designated for possible deployment and begin training without requiring an immediate decision on whether to send them all. They would be arriving in increments in any case. To show resolve, the president must announce that he was immediately ordering a smaller contingent of U.S. forces to mentor the Afghan National Security Force and to protect the population, while emphasizing that further deployment would be conditioned on specific steps by the Afghan government, such as a commitment and a plan to take full responsibility for national defense on a specific timeline. Afghans, allies, and others in the region would see this not as indecision, but rather as seriousness of purpose why we must take the time. We have not yet conducted a comprehensive, interdisciplinary analysis of all our strategic options, nor have we brought all of the real-world variables to bear in testing the proposed counterinsurgency plan. We agree that more troops will yield more security wherever they deploy for as long as they stay, But the last time we sent substantial additional forces, a deployment totaling 33,000, in 2008-2009, overall violence and instability in Afghanistan intensified. Also, neither the Afghan National Security Force nor the Afghan government has demonstrated the will or ability to take over lead security responsibility, much less governance, in any area cleared and held by NATO ISAF. Experience with troop increases, therefore, offers scant reason to expect that further increases will permanently advance our strategic purposes. Instead, they will dig us in more deeply. We also need time to work with President Karzai and his new team many of whom may not be in place for several months, to test whether they are both able and committed to lead the counterinsurgency mission we are defining for them. In fact, Karzai explicitly rejected the counterinsurgency basis and purpose of McChrystal's proposal when first briefed on it in detail two months ago. Rather, in a PBS interview on November 7th, Karzai sounded bizarrely cautionary about his willingness to address governance and corruption. This tracks with his record of inaction or grudging compliance in this area. We need an intense, high-level dialogue to judge whether we can gain enforceable commitments from the Afghan government to build their own capacity and to assume responsibility for security and governance in cleared areas. Absent such a judgment, we cannot presume that another large infusion of U.S. troops necessarily will give us leverage over them.
3: Dr.
1: Gunderson.
0: Don't want what, child?
1: My coffee. The warden says he's tired of my coffee. Well, it's been pretty clear that your coffee don't got zest appeal.
2: Zest appeal? What's that? I don't know. Oh. That's the secret
1: ingredient in Airsart Brothers Coffee, yeah. Look here. Oh, A blend of the finest Brazilian soya beans, Chilean chicory nuts, and Spanish flies. Oh. Here, take this can home with you, Katie.
2: The uh, next morning More uh, Coffee Martin No, oh, I think I've had enough. Uh, Airzatz <laughs> brothers coffee, the real one. Look for the can in the plain brown can.
0: This is the second part of Ambassador Carl Eikenberry's secret cable to Hillary Clinton on November 9th when he discusses the advisability or the inadvisability of sending 30 to 40,000 troops immediately to Afghanistan. It's a secret cable. The subject is looking beyond counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. His recommendation, hence we recommend a comprehensive, deliberate, and interdisciplinary re-examination of our strategic options carried out by the end of the year to decide how best to accomplish the President's March 27 strategy. This should go beyond a war game or red team exercise, yet not become a months-long Baker-Hamilton-style commission for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Rather, the White House could appoint a panel of civilian and military experts to examine the Afghanistan-Pakistan strategy and the full range of options. It could include eminent bipartisan political figures such as former senior U.S. government and congressional leaders. Among the issues this panel should examine are the potential that a reintegration reconciliation program has for taking insurgents off the battlefield, the only approach holding attraction for Karzai and the mass of Afghans, the prospects for the Pakistan security services putting meaningful pressure against the Afghan Taliban, the insurgent sanctuaries and leadership, and al-Qaeda the impact of increasing U.S. and international aid and development programs on long-term stability in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The second and third order effects within Afghanistan and the region of sending more U.S. troops, the U.S. and allied willingness to bear the cost in lives and treasure over the timeline in the ISAF proposal, and whether our definition of the strategic problem in purely military terms of counterinsurgency within Afghanistan is sufficient to address the president's strategic focus on al-Qaeda with both Afghanistan and Pakistan. This strategic re-examination could either include or lead to high-level U.S. talks with the Afghans, the Pakistanis, the Saudis, and other important regional players, including possibly Iran, as well as NATO, its component nations, and even the United Nations. Such a process of rigorous internal U.S. government deliberations leading to deeper political-military consultations with our allies and other stakeholders could powerfully build support at home and abroad for the president's eventual decisions about the way forward. The risks. McChrystal has laid out the risk we face in not sending the full complement of additional troops right now. But there are competing risks. For example, that we will become more deeply engaged here with no way to extricate ourselves, short of allowing the country to descend again into lawlessness and chaos. Also, the demand for U.S. and allied civilian efforts in Afghanistan will only grow with the deployment of large numbers of additional U.S. troops. To mitigate such countervailing risks, I believe there is no option but to widen the scope of our analysis to consider alternatives beyond a strictly military counterinsurgency effort with Afghanistan. Respectfully, Carl Eikenberry.
1: This looks like a microcosm of America to me.
0: Okay, everybody. and Uh I'm speaking to everybody all across the web world from, I don't know, from Toledo to Sheboygan to Uzbekistan. He's
1: got that look on his face. America
0: is... Is now the official land of wingnuts. We've always known it, but you know it's Arizona's going crazy, and we see Georgia's a ha ha state, and of course South Carolina has been you know off the edge for a long time. Now you know Alvin Green, all right, the unemployed veteran who mysteriously won the state's Democratic Senate primary without campaigning. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he has come up with his own stimulus plan. Are you ready? Okay, drum roll. Another thing we can do for jobs, he says, is make toys of me, especially for the holidays, little dolls, me, like maybe little action dolls, me in an army uniform, Air Force uniform, and me in my suit. They can make toys of me and my vehicle, especially for the holidays and Christmas for the kids. That's something that would create jobs. So you see, I think out of the box like that. It's not something a typical person would bring up. That's something that could happen that makes sense. It's not a joke. I like this guy. Yeah, action I, dolls of me. Of me, of yeah, me, yeah, sure. Yeah, make toys of me. Even, that's it. E- even that wrestler
1: from Minnesota, he didn't even have action no, toys made of him. No, because Jesse was
0: vaguely modest, right? Well, and he had a brain.
1: Well, that too. Yeah, that too. But
0: I like this guy. Green, huh? Yeah, green. he it, It's not a joke. He is, but that's not a joke. No. I'm on the phone with David Bloom, energy expert. He's the uh, author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas. We've talked with him already. This is our second interview. We're talking about ethanol as a substitute for or as a co-fuel with oil. David, good to have you back on on the Skype with me.
2: I'm always glad to be here.
0: Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, ethanol, like anything else, has to be produced. And when you produce anything, it, it, it there is energy used. It has some sort of a what you might call carbon footprint. How efficient is it? And what sort of pollution is involved with producing ethanol? And what's the best way to do it?
2: Well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. First of all, you need to know how eth- ethanol is made. And it's mm-hmm. made by plants. Mm-hmm. So plants take in carbon dioxide from the air, yeah. water from the sky... And sunlight. So those three things are uh, combined in photosynthesis, and we call them carbohydrates. Right. Carbo for carbon dioxide, hydrate for water. Yeah. So we're actually pulling CO2 out of the air when we go ahead and make alcohol from starches and sugars. All right. uh, when we go ahead and burn the alcohol in the car, yeah. what comes out the tailpipe is what went in, carbon dioxide and water. But what drives the car down the road is the solar energy. The difference between alcohol and, say, fossil fuels like gasoline is that the CO2 coming out of the tailpipe is used by next year's alcohol crop to make next year's fuel. So we are recycling the CO2 that we make each year with the car to come back to be next year's fuel. Oil doesn't have that recycling quality because the plants that made oil are have been dead for millions of years, and plants don't um, – those plants are you know, not currently producing. So we're burning the old plants and adding CO2 to the air with oil, but with alcohol, we're constantly recycling.
0: Well, well, and just plants, say, go ahead, go ahead,
2: please. Go ahead. Well, plants actually take much more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere than what ends up in the alcohol. The stalks, the roots, and uh, actually the plants exude sugar into the soil to feed all that soil microlife. So in some studies, we see up to 13 times the CO2 being taken out of the air than what is given off in the manufacture and burning of the alcohol. So if you want to reverse global warming, increase photosynthesis.
0: Well, let me ask you something. What about, I've heard, and this indeed may just be apocryphal, that it it takes more energy to create uh, ethanol than it gives back as a fuel. What about that? Is that just not true? That's
2: a... Well, that's an interesting study that was done by David Pimentel back in 1980 and then repeated over and over since. It turned out that David Pimentel was in the employ of Mobil Oil at oh, the no. time. Oh, no. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yes, and, uh, and in fact, Mobil complained loudly when people exposed that fact to the public. And David Pimentel, in an interview with myself, reversed that completely. and said, of course, if you make uh, alcohol and you use organic methods to grow our crops to do it you'd of course you know have a, a big energy return so um, you know basically what we've been told over time is kind of a selective quote of nonsense and the real facts are for instance in Brazil they get nine times the energy out for every unit of energy in but the unit of energy in is not oil it's the sugarcane fiber left over after they squeeze the juice out to make the alcohol They burn the fiber, which is renewable, and they're able to make all the steam and electricity they need to run the plant and put electricity back in the grid. So with alcohol, we don't really need to use any fossil fuels to make it at all. Are you telling
0: me then, you know, like they say, hey, these infomercials, are you telling me that we can successfully replace a significant amount of oil with alcohol as a general fuel?
2: Well, there's a couple of little countries out there like India and Brazil, you know, little postage stamp-sized places. And and Brazil now imports no oil whatsoever to run their vehicles. Really, Ninety-five percent of the cars run on alcohol right now in Brazil.
0: Well, let me ask you something then. This this is very interesting. What are you doing to make this possible besides promoting it with with interviews like this and various uh, affairs? are, Are you actually producing equipment that can make this possible?
2: Well, we do two things. One, we have a book, Alcohol Can Be a Gas, which teaches people how to build their own equipment if they're the handy sort. Right. So, you know, the idea is that making alcohol is, well, mankind's second oldest profession. It's not exactly all that complicated. But for the people who are more uh, interested in just getting down to business and making alcohol and all the great byproducts that come from doing that, we are now starting to uh, manufacture equipment that – will allow small business people, entrepreneurs, uh, municipalities that control the dump, or even turn sewage into cattails and make alcohol from that. So the pl- the equipment we're doing is very small. It's not like the 100 million gallon per year plants yeah. that yeah. industry has in the Midwest, which have environmental problems. These are like 120,000 gallon per year plants that could fuel you and 100 of your best friends uh you know uh, cuz most people use about 500 to 1000 gallons a year and you can use it to replace your fuel oil. You can use it to uh, generate electricity. So you can really unplug yourself from the fossil fuel companies uh, if you just go ahead and um, make alcohol, sell it to your friends and neighbors in the community.
0: Well, this is very exciting, and we'll be back again with with another interview. Others uh, want to find out, uh, you know, where the outreach is with w- with ethanol, who's using it, and how you can uh, develop, you know, local ways to make this happen. Thank you very much, David Bloom. Thank you. One of the nice things about being in a an election year it is it seems that every year is an election year. By the way, I mean you know we're always talking, people are always running for something. It, it, you get you get a chance to really get into some very interesting characters, like our certifiable Senate, senatorial candidate in Kentucky, Rand Paul. Now he wants to build a fence along the U.S. border. Nothing unusual in that, is there, David? No, no. Senator David's Dang right. Fence yeah. is right with him. Yep. Yeah, that, that's that's except that Paul wants the fence to be electric. And he wants it built underground. Wait a minute, a fence underground? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I have, I have a. a well, we, you know the way people weirdness. are training dogs now, where they put those special collars on them, and if they go past a certain place, there's wires. They underground. electrocute the dog. They electrocute over the dog. Yeah, so yeah, I guess right. he wants to put collars on potential. Illegal aliens, undocumented people, nice collars probably, you know, Mm -hmm. with a little style. He dresses well, kind of. And then if they try to come across the border, oh, que lastima, they go back home.
1: Uh Uh-huh. How
0: do you get the collars on the Mexicans? Hold on. Okay. Among the variety of proposals to stem illegal immigrants, uh, the construction of an underground electric fence appears to stand alone on the extreme. I think that Huff is being kind here. There is little contemporary evidence of other Republican officials proposing such a project, even among the most conservative of the bunch, indeed, when approached in the halls of the Senate and asked about the idea, though not told who proposed it, National Republican Senate Committee Chair John Cornyn, they don't come any right winger than him, assumed it was a joke. Well, you know oh. what? It is a joke. So in a speech in downtown Paducah, Kentucky, Paul pegged the cost of his quixotic idea at somewhere between 10 and $15 million. And that's cheap. That's got small say, change. Yeah. The benefits of an underground fence, he argued, were that it would not have the symbolism of a Berlin wall-like structure, and it would be considered less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. Less offensive to Hispanic voters who are already fleeing the country. I don't get where this man's coming from. He isn't paying his sin tax. What's that all about? What's it
1: all about, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA? Well, it's about this long. And about that wide. And it's about this country. About which we're singing about.
0: One of my favorite political buffoons... Michael Steele, who's head of the Republican National Committee, and whom one person described as having the gravitas of a balloon, is in trouble for, in many ways, in certain ways, telling it like it is. He was at a fundraiser in Connecticut and basically criticized the Obama administration, and said in so many words that the Afghanistan war was unwinnable. You've probably seen the video, if you haven't, go on up. Everybody's sitting around in this tent eating chicken a la king, and Steele is way in the background walking around, talking and talking, and nobody seems to be paying attention, but you can hear his comments. He called the McChrystal incident comical, and then he went on to say that the war in Afghanistan is Obama's war. And he says, well, if Obama is such a student of history, why doesn't he understand that the one thing you don't engage in is a land war in Afghanistan? You're right. All right, he says, because everybody who has tried over a thousand years of history has failed, and there are reasons for that. There are other ways to engage in Afghanistan. Of course, he doesn't go into what those various alternative solutions are, because he is indeed a large, self-involved windbag. But all of a sudden, the right and the left are jumping on Michael Steele and they're calling for him to resign except for one Republican, da da, da, da America's leading libertarian ideologue, Ron Paul, right? He says no. He should not resign. He wants to congratulate Michael Steele for his leadership on one of the most important issues today. He says he's absolutely right. Afghanistan is now Obama's war. And he says, I have to ask myself what is the agenda of the harsh critics demanding this resignation? Why do they support Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama's war? Barack Obama's war? What a totally naive assessment. Afghanistan is no more Obama's war than World War II was Roosevelt's war. Just because he campaigned in 1940 saying he was going to keep us out of the war, events made that impossible. Obama inherited Afghanistan from Bush and every other American policymaker, stretching back three decades when the CIA joined up with Pakistani intelligence and a variety of Afghan warlords to teach the Russians a lesson. Remember, we pledged to make Afghanistan Russia's Vietnam, and it's part of a much larger geopolitical strategy. Not a good strategy, or very well thought out, and I would certainly like us to stop trying to build pipelines and nations in the area, but to call it Obama's war displays the kind of ideological tunnel vision that Ron may very well have passed on to his son. Why don't we just run an underground electric fence along the Afghan-Pakistan border and solve the whole problem once and for all? Oh. McNewspaper reports, Dave, that a Russian unmanned cargo spacecraft has finally successfully docked with the International Space Station after missing an earlier attempt. Okay? Well, just one of those sleepy times, you know. Come on. We missed! It's a Russian, Russian thing, right? Yep. The, the Progress cargo vessel, a resupply craft, was trying to dock with the space station when a technical problem occurred about 20 minutes before the docking time. Okay. Oh
1: God, I got a technical problem over here. What yeah, but exactly there's nobody. No, no, there's I, nobody. There's
0: no. nobody inside this craft. Oh seat. no, there's only people down at NASA control Whoa, with yeah. the Russian. The vessel flew about two miles past the space station, and the Russian mission commander Alexander Zvorstov, has told NASA mission control that the cargo vessel was seen in a state of uncontrollable spinning. (laughs) Whoa, Nellie, how would you like to be one of those crew watching your resupply ship go by uncontrollably? You won't be able to pop the caps on that crate of eight-ounce Coke classics for fear of blowing up the ship. There's ah. no doubt about it. Oh, boy. Well, now, the craft <laughs> launched from the Baikonur Space Center in Kazakhstan, where they're having trouble on many levels, mm-hmm. right, said the state-run um, news agency from Russia. It planned to deliver fuel, oxygen, scientific equipment, uh, video photo equipment, and classic Coke to the space station, <laughs> along with food, water, and personal items for crew members, including newly uh, stipulated wills. Progress uh, uh, resupply— Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. No, no, I, I, wills? No, are, you no. The wheels is. are all the same, I, spinning I, or not. I was going to
1: throw in the porno pictures, but go ahead.
0: No, you know, they I, got spun out, man, by the time we got there. Spun out, away, yeah. Couldn't recognize them, yeah. all bobbled up. Progressory supply vehicles typically deliver supplies to the space station and haul away trash burning up on re-entry. So I'm going to ask you now, Dave, maybe we can get rid of our trash that way also. Ship it to outer space and let it burn upon re-entry, you know? Yeah, we
1: send ours to Oregon, you might as well send it to the moon, you know?
0: Some parts of Oregon resemble the moon, and and if we send it away and it comes back and just burns itself up, it's gone. It's an idea, not a very good one.
1: Well, it might, you know, those garbage trucks are awfully heavy. I mean, just get one off. Yeah, put a garbage got, truck I mean, on garbage the top of one out. of them rockets. Well, yeah, you don't want to have to unload it, do you? No, you don't. And then, I mean, then then you send it out. And then let it go, and by the time it reenters Earth, poof, go. Well, it's all, everything inside is burned up. It lands there at uh, Sector 9, and everybody thinks it's an alien.
0: You just heard the best of the best, and here's the Oz team that keeps it best. Peter Bergman, same moi. I'm your host. David Osmond, your co-host. John Cumming does a little bit of electric here and a little bit of electric there. Phil Fountain, head of the design group. Tom Gedwillow, he's our web bonger. Chaz Glass, man, he is finance. Dave Maloney does the sound. Bill McIntyre produces it. And Scott Wild is our media guru.